Good morning. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Thomas Raggetts. I'm a special assistant Wabasha County attorney, and I represent appellant the state of Minnesota in this matter. The issue before this court today is the meaning of the phrase offense definitions as used in guideline section 2B7A. And I have two arguments. First, this court does not need to determine whether Mr. Strobel is correct and whether this phrase, offense definitions, refers to the substantive element-based definitions of crimes, like the definition of fifth-degree drug possession, or whether the state's correct and whether offense definitions is synonymous with the parenthetical setting to the crime-level definitions set out in section 60902. This court doesn't need to reach that issue because even under the approach Mr. Strobel uh, advocates for, the elements-based approach, his criminal history score is still correct. That's argument number one. Argument number two is, of course, if you do need to decide between those two definitions, under the rules of statutory def, uh, d determination, you should um, go with the crime-level definition approach, not the elements-based approach. So I'll jump right into my first argument, which is that Mr. Strobel's criminal history score is correct, even under his elements-based approach, because the date is an element of the crime. And it's undisputed here that the crime occurred in 2012. The Drug Sentencing Reform Act didn't, uh, wasn't enacted until 2016, and it is not retroactive. So when you look at the date as an element, his criminal history score was uh, and remains correct. Now, Mr. Strobel asked you to look at one particular fact of his crime, the drug weight, but ignore another fact, the date. And there's no basis for only looking at one element and not looking at another for such a selective approach. When you look Isn't at- Isn't Scoville a reason? Isn't Scoville a reason to do that? Didn't Scoville say you look at the, how the offense is defined at the time of the current offense? Well, no, that's the question that left open for this court. I don't think so. I think the holding of that case was that you look at the, the offense at the time of the current offense. Well, yes, and you, so you, you look at the current offense definition, and my argument is under the current offense definition, under his approach where you look at the elements, one of the elements is the date. And part of the offense defi definition is the Drug Sentencing Reform Act doesn't apply to crimes before August 1st, 2016. So looking at the current elements, the date element is it has to be after August 1st, 2016. So that's my argument here. Mr. That's Raggetts, why. I, I'm, I'm struggling with this idea that the date is an element of the crime. When have we ever said that? I mean, if I, if I were to walk into your office today and ask you what, what, are, uh, what, is the, uh, uh, what does it take to be convicted of first-degree sale of meth, which is what he was convicted of here, you would, I would hope, would turn to the controlled substance uh, chapter of, uh, of the statutes, Minnesota statutes, and you'd look at 152 or whatever it is, and you'd read to me those elements, the elements of the crime. Right. And if you look at, well, first of all, I cited, the, I think it's, well, I cited in my brief, uh, I believe it's the Finney case, I may have the, the name wrong, from 1976, I think, where this court described the date and the jurisdiction as elements. And if you look at any crim jig that describes the elements of crime, it includes date and jurisdiction. Now, it's true that in the elements listed in that statute, it doesn't say date, but it also doesn't say jurisdiction. That doesn't mean we can, we can convict someone in Ramsey County for a crime committed uh, way up north. Those are essential elements, and if you look at the definition of a isn't crime, isn't that a venue statute, issue? Is that is that not more of a venue, proper venue? Well, the the um, whether you call it jurisdiction or venue, 
that is something the state has to prove, just True. like the state has to prove the date. It's so an counsel, element. Isn't it correct that if, if that question is not asked, which has happened um, during the course of a trial, uh, and the state closes and they haven't answered that question, they lose? That's true, Your Honor. Uh, I, there may be certain situations where uh, it could be harmless error, but I'm not sure. And I think generally that we do have to prove that because if the crime occurred after the statute of limitations, there can't be a conviction. So we have to prove the date. And I think another good hypothetical is the new revenge porn statute. If we charge someone with revenge porn, but they, what they did was before August 1st, 2016, it's not a crime. So we have to prove that it took place after August 1st, 2016. So the date is an element under this court's case law, under all the jigs, and more importantly, if you look at the statutes in the book, as you suggested, there's always those notes at the bottom that tell you when the statute uh, was changed or when it took effect. And that's part of the definition. It has to be part of the definition. Otherwise, we could convict someone of revenge porn for something they did 10 years ago, which we clearly can't. So that's where Mr. Strobel's argument fails, because date is an essential element. So your uh, position is once felony, always a felony? Unless the crime is retroactive. And so, unless the legislature expressly says we're wiping out all previous convictions. Right. That's a legislative choice. Now, it's different, obviously, if the crime has been found unconstitutional. So sodomy, for example, that, once that's wiped out, all old convictions are what if, gone. What if the legislature simply says we're decriminalizing the conduct? Well, then this court would have the same job it had in, I think it was uh, either Otto or Kirby, where it has to decide, is it retroactive or not, based on what the legislature said. But that's not an issue here, because we've all agreed that, that the Drug Sentencing Reform Act is not retroactive. And so that's where the date element is crucial here. Now, I mean, if it's decriminalized, then there's not a current Minnesota offense definition, is there? No, I, I suppose there wouldn't be. Um, but um, I'm not sure that that would um, impact your criminal history score. I mean, you still have a felony sentence. Um, and so under my crime level definition approach, you look at, were you given a felony sentence? Has the definition of felony changed? If the answer is no, that's how you determine the points. Um, Counsel, but the, the sentencing guidelines has the ability to say how certain points are counted. For example, there's a decay factor. So under your argument, w wouldn't they not be allowed to, to say after 15 years or 10 years, depending on the, the uh, conviction, you can't count that anymore? I mean, no, I, I think these are two different things, the conviction and whether you, you count it for a sentencing purposes. Well, the legislature or the sentencing guidelines, and I'll probably use those two fairly synonymously here, uh, certainly could do what um, Mr. Strobel uh, thinks they should have done here, which is clarify that the Drug Sentencing Reform Act applies to all old criminal history points. That actually, that was a proposition that was put forward and was voted down. So they could have done that, but they didn't. And I think when you go back to the plain language here um, of current Minnesota offense definitions, even, even under Mr. Strobel's approach where you look at the date, the date's an element and the date says the Drug Sentencing Reform Act doesn't apply here. So I'm not sure if that totally answers your question, but... Um, I also seem to recall there's a, a section in the guidelines that if the legislature does change the offense levels, then the guidelines change. Right. So I think it's important to distinguish between... Not some... levels, but I mean if they change an element of the crime. I can't remember what the guideline provision is, but then you don't go ahead and count it as you did before. 
when well, the elements of the offense have changed. I think that's the issue in this case, whether because the elements have now changed for fifth degree drug possession. And the issue is, do we apply that back to 2012 for criminal history points purposes or, or not? Um, I think it's important to distinguish between whether a crime is a felony or not and its severity level. Because once you have a felony, you still have to determine what severity level it is. And you can't determine that just based on the length of the sentence, whether it gets 1.5 points or two points. That's different than what we're talking about here, which is just whether it's a felony or not. If it's a felony or there's a minimum of 0.5 points, which is what Mr. Strobel got, uh, and so my initial argument is, if you accept his proposition that you look at the elements, date's an element, and the Drug Sensing Reform Act isn't retroactive, so therefore his criminal history score is correct. Um, now, one response to that might be, well, haven't you just read the word current out of current Minnesota offense definitions? Haven't you rendered that word superfluous? And I haven't because you always have to start by looking at the current Minnesota offense definition. And if that current definition says this statute's been in effect forever, well, then clearly you apply it. Or if it says the statute is retroactive, then you apply it. It's only when you look at a current Minnesota offense definition and see that it's been changed that you then have to go to the date element and determine was it effective on the date of this prior crime. So the word current counsel, still matters. What, what, That's what still case, where you start. Counsel, what case says that, though? Why don't we just simply you take the common sense approach and just say current means current? And, and, and that's what we said in Scoville. Current means current. Current means now. It doesn't mean 2012. It means the definition that's in effect now. That, that, that's exactly what I'm arguing, Your Honor. It means the, the current definition now, and the current definition now includes the date element, and the date element tells you this doesn't apply back to 2012. And I shouldn't say that's what I'm, adver I, I, that's what I'm arguing now. Under Mr. Strobel's elements-based approach, I'm arguing we still win because you can't ignore the date. There's no basis for ignoring the date. Otherwise, revenge porn becomes a crime in 1999. Um, you have to look at the date. And under his date, under his elements-based approach, we still win. And current isn't superfluous because you still have to look at, this, at the crime. And if the crime's retroactive, which the legislature certainly can do, well, then all of the current elements uh, line up with 2012 and the date doesn't matter. But if it's not retroactive, the date matters. Following up on Justice Hudson's question, the word current is used in both 7A and 7B. Um, can you tell me what you think it means? Does it have a consistent meaning between 7A and 7B? Your Honor, the, um, the word current always means at the time of conviction. I think that's what this court's already, already held. And I'm not arguing against that. My argument is that when you look at current at the time of conviction. Well, I, I well, thought in Scoville. The date matters. It, it can't mean current at the time of conviction in 7B because it says not the current threshold. That's at the time of the, the later crime, not the earlier crime. Oh, okay. So we're talking about the monetary threshold now. Right. That, that is an exception that has been created that says basically we don't care if the thresholds have changed. You always look at the original one. But is B using the current in the same sense as A? I think it is. It's the threshold at the time of the of, what? of the later crime if you're calculating criminal history score. And I'm not disputing that you use the, that for Mr. Strobel's case, you use the 2016 current offense definitions, but those include the date element and the fact that the legislature chose not to make the DSRA retroactive. So I think current is consistent there. Um, one more quick point on argument one, here's, and then I'll... Here's my problem, though. The legislature chose to say that this kind of behavior, this fifth-degree uh, drug possession, 
is no longer, uh, it doesn't merit felonious punishment. And the whole point of our guidelines, um, when we go back to see what people have been convicted of, is to punish them appropriately um, in it, looking at their behavior. And I, I think your argument, I mean, just from a, you know, like a high level fairness point of view, we don't believe that somebody who has, the legislature doesn't believe that somebody who has a really small amount of either marijuana or, or heroin and it's their first conviction, there's lots of caveats on it, deserves that kind of punishment. Well, Your Honor, I think that was a political decision for the legislature to make, and I don't think one can argue with a straight face that the Republicans in the legislature wanted lots of people to have to be resentenced or have their criminal history score rescheduled. I don't think there's any evidence that was the legislature's intent, because the legislature clearly could have said the DSRA is retroactive for everything, and it didn't. So if you have a conviction from 2015 that you're serving, you don't get to have your time Why the Republicans? under the DSRA. Pardon me? Why the Republicans? Because the Republicans are the ones who fought against making the DSRA retroactive. That's acknowledged in the case law. The, the Democrats, at least some of them, wanted the DSRA to be retroactive. But why? But it's the it, legislature. Pardon me? It's the legislature that right. we look to, not Republicans and Democrats. Well, there was no consensus at the legislature. That's my point. And the notion that there was, that the Democrats and Republicans were all on the same page, that the DSRA should be retroactive, doesn't fit with the historical record. Uh, same thing is true for the Sentencing Guidelines Commission. There was no consensus at the Guidelines Commission that the DSRA should be retroactive. That was proposed. It was voted down. Um, so, Well, when a felony conviction goes away because it's old, is that retroactive? No, because when you got that felony conviction, attached to it was a 15-year decay factor. So that hasn't changed. There's always been this 15-year decay factor. Now, the legislature could change the decay factor. What if they did do that? Then would then would that decay factor apply because it was the, it's the, 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 the element, the date of the, it, if the date is an element, then that decay factor wouldn't change under your argument. Well, it would be up to the legislature, again, to make a political decision whether they want the new decay factor to only apply to current and going forward offenses or to old offenses. It's always up to the legislature to decide retroactivity unless it's a constitutional matter, which no one is arguing here. Counsel, are we, are we really, though, talking about true retroactivity? Because Mr. Strobel, <laughs> i got to get the Kate names right, he's not arguing to overturn or to do anything with respect to his actual conviction. That's still going to remain in place. So it, it isn't, I, I understand your point, but it isn't, I, I think we should be clear, it isn't true retroactivity, yet you keep using that word. That's, it's, that, but it's well, not about retroactivity. It's not retroactivity in the sense that you're going to go back and change his record to say he no longer has a felony on his record. But you, I, I think I made this point in my reply brief. In July of 2016, he had five criminal history points. He may not have known what they were, but that's what he had if anyone had calculated it. And he's saying that because of something that happened later, that five goes down to a four and a half. That's retroactivity. It's something that did exist being changed by something that happens later. It's not the same sort of retroactivity, but it is going back and changing something that well, previously existed. It's not existed. legal retroactivity. Maybe it's, it's something else. Maybe. Well, it, it's criminal history score retroactivity. I think that's maybe the best way to Council, put it. Council, let me give you a hypothetical. Let's say the legislature decides to change the definition of felony in 609.02 sub 2 and now says a felony is when you get more than six months uh, in your sentence. And let's say you've got somebody who's been convicted of a crime and uh, was a gross misdemeanor and got eight months. 
Um, so how would the how would 7A apply in such a situation using your definition? Well, using my definition where you look at the crime level definitions, not Mr. Strobel's elements-based approach, you would look at the definition of a felony and see, has it changed since then? Now, the complication here is if there's an ex post facto problem of going backwards. If you're going to tell someone, when you did this thing, you didn't know it was going to be a felony, but now it's a felony, that might create an ex post facto problem. But if you flip it and say the legislature decides, we have too many felons in Minnesota. Let's make felonies two years in a day, not one year in a day. Well, then anyone who got less than a two-year-in-a-day sentence under the new definition of felony... Yeah, my, my hypothetical is the legislature actually enhancing the definition of felony. And you, so is your answer, short of an ex post facto problem, by the, the words of 7A, then that former gross misdemeanor becomes a felony for sentencing purposes? It, it would if you ignored the ex post facto clause, which I don't think we can do. Okay, but yes, just, just want, looking just at the definition. I want to make sure you're being consistent. Well, right. And, and I, but I, so I think since that's impossible, the, the equivalent example is the one I was giving of the felony definition going up. And in that case, if you had a felony from 2012 where you got a year and a day and the legislature decided felonies should be two years and a day, you would no longer have a felony on your criminal history score. Um, so that would be consistent. It can work to both sides' advantage. It depends what the legislature does. Um, Counsel, if this theory that you're arguing now, you're calling the first issue, um, how, how do, what do we do about 7B, the monetary threshold? Because it just seems to me that you continue to have a problem with giving effect to both the language in A and B. Well, what, um, this theory, the elements-based approach, which again is Mr. Strobel's approach, not mine, but under that approach, um, the, the monetary threshold, um, just says, you don't, we don't care about retroactivity. We don't care about whether the definition of felony has changed. You always look at the original money amount. So that's an exception. Now, that may be inconsistent with Mr. Strobel's elements-based approach. I'm not arguing for that approach. I'm saying we win even under that approach. Right, but what's the, what do we need B for? If, if that approach is right, and we're looking at the date of the offense, and it's 2012, then what do we need B for? You don't, and maybe that's a reason, another reason to, to, to reject Mr. Strobel's elements-based approach and adopt well, Isn't my... it a reason to say that the argument you're making about his approach just doesn't hold up? No, because I don't think that has anything to do with the fact that uh, the date has to be an element. Um, and if, if that renders the, um, the monetary threshold superfluous, well, that's a flaw in the elements-based approach then, but it doesn't somehow make the date not an element. Um, I seem to have radically underestimated how much time I would need for this section of my argument and not my rebuttal. So if, with this court's permission, I'd like to go into my rebuttal time a little bit out of fairness to respondents so I make my points and he can address them because I haven't even gotten to argument number two yet. So um, I, I think that covers what I wanted to say on argument number one. Essentially, date's an element. The effective date's part of the offense definition. Current isn't superfluous. Um, and you can't just look at the weight and not at the date. Um, so on argument number two, I've got four points. And this argument is you should adopt the crime level definition approach, not the elements-based approach. And there's four reasons for that. The first is the elements-based approach renders superfluous 27BA's reference to 60902. It has no meaning. Uh, and it's 20% of the language we're looking at. That shouldn't be rendered superfluous. Also, its placement uh, is very odd under his approach. Um, his approach would make sense if the parenthetical is after the word felony, but it's not. It's after the word definitions. So if that isn't going to be superfluous, 
it refers this court to the crime level definitions, not to elements. The legislature could have used the word elements if it wanted to. Counsel, um, I see the parenthetical that references 609.02, but then the words continue, and sentencing policies. What does and sentencing policies mean in 7A? Uh, I'm going to give you three answers to that. And the first is, I don't know, and there is th only three. Um, the first is, I don't know, and there isn't any language that really explains that. Um, second, Mr. Strobel has... So your first answer is you don't know? Right. The first answer is there's, there's nothing in the guidelines or in the history or anything either of us have identified that says what sentencing and sentencing policies means here. Wouldn't the sentencing policies be the guidelines themselves, the other provisions of the guidelines, like well, maybe the out-of-state provision, maybe 2B11 that says, you know, the commission is concerned whether the offending behavior still merits felonious uh, punishment. Aren't those all policies sent? Right. That was my argument number three. My first argument was my, my first answer was my honest answer is I don't know and I don't think anybody knows. There's no language that explains this. Answer number three, which I'll jump to, is it makes sense to read that as the, the sentencing guidelines policies, like you, uh, like you mentioned. And one of those policies is uniformity. And uh, as I'll get to in a minute, under the crime level definition approach, out-of-state and in-state offenses will be treated uniformly. Under Mr. Strobel's elements-based approach, they won't. So I think, if anything, the sentencing guidelines policies, where you look at the conviction and the sentence, you don't look at the date of trial, the date of sentencing, you don't look at what the sentence could have been. All of those favor a crime-level definition approach. And my only other point here, then, is Mr. Strobel hasn't argued that the and sentencing policies somehow support his argument as opposed to mine. So at best, I think it's neutral, um, or at worst, it's neutral. At best, I think the underlying policies support the crime-level definition approach. Uh, and the first reason was the, the not running the 609 reference superfluous. I'll jump ahead then to the uniformity. Under an elements-based approach, um, out-of-state convictions will be treated different from in-state convictions under certain circumstances. And I'll give you a hypothetical involving a drug crime in 2012 in Duluth and the identical crime in 2012 in Superior. Uh, if a defendant commits the crime, commits, if a defendant um, possessed 49 grams of methamphetamine in Duluth in 2012. Um, that was a first-degree crime back then, two points. Under the DSRA, now it's a second-degree crime, 1.5 points. Um, under Mr. Strobel's approach, that wouldn't affect his criminal history score because he says you only look at when the definition of a felony has changed. So the Duluth defendant would still get two criminal history points under Mr. Strobel's approach. However, the defendant in Superior would now only get 1.5 points because the DSRA would apply to out-of-state convictions because if you look at the offense elements, the offense elements have changed um, under his approach, and there is no limit there to just when the felony has changed. Um, so under his approach, Duluth gets treated different than Superior. That's not consistent with what the guidelines generally try and do. Under a crime-level definition approach, all you look at is has the definition of felony changed and so they will both be treated the same. Can you explain why he's still at two? Is that assuming your argument about what his argument means, about the date is an element? That, that's just under his approach that, um, where he says this, these crimes in the DSRA won't have a big impact on a lot of people here because the section we're looking at specifically only talks about felony, felonies changing to non-felonies. So under his approach, if a felony hasn't changed to a non-felony, that's the end of the story. Um, uh, and that's, um, that's not what we're arguing for here, obviously. Counsel, can you do the same hypothetical, only applying it to 
uh, the fifth degree possession offense that, you know, of the type that we're talking about today after the Sentencing Reform Act? Well, that is the case before us today. So under his argument, um, everybody in state and out state get the change because there is a change from felony to there's not. no inconsistency there. Not for fifth degree, but there is for first to second degree. There's for and, everything. And, and that's because the, the nature of the crime changed. It, it, it no longer is a felony if you have those small amounts of drugs. Right, right. My point is here just there would be inconsistency. So, so as not to use up too much more of my rebuttal time, I'll, I'll run through my other two points quick. First of all, we talked about um, not rendering 60902 superfluous, the consistency. I've already talked about the monetary threshold and how that still matters and isn't superfluous under my approach because the monetary threshold tells you you don't have to worry about retroactivity. You don't have to worry about a change in the definition of felony. You always go back to the original money amount. The last point I want to make is that a crime-level definition approach is consistent with the plain language of comment 2B701, which says the commission recognized that the classification of criminal conduct as a felony, gross misdemeanor, or misdemeanor, or petty misdemeanor is determined legally by the sentence given rather than the conviction offense. That is broad and plain language. Under Mr. Uh, Mr. Strobel's approach, that's not true. Under Mr. Strobel's approach, sometimes the sentence doesn't determine the points. Sometimes the offense does. Now, I know it's only a comment, but to be consistent, um, the crime-level definition approach fits best with that comment. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. You have, what, 10 minutes for rebuttal? 10 minutes for rebuttal. Um, Mr. Lozo. the court. My name is Adam Lozo, and I represent the respondent, Donald Strobel. I want to start by talking about the reasons that this court should not reverse the Court of Appeals on the argument that was raised for the first time in the appellant's reply brief. Uh, the appellant didn't petition for review on that question. This court didn't grant review on that question, and it was wasn't even raised in his principal brief. He argued for the first time in his reply brief to this court that even under the approach adopted by the Court of Appeals and argued by uh, Mr. Strobel, the respondent, that the state should win. This court should decline to consider that question. But even if the, this court does consider that question, there are several reasons why Mr. Strobel's, or why the Court of Appeals decision should be affirmed. First of all, uh, the, it is true that, um, this, that it has been said that venue and jurisdiction are elements of the, are, need to be proven in order for someone's guilt to be proven. But, those, but first of all, uh, those are not part of the offense definition, and that's what the sentencing guidelines direct courts to look at. Even if, even if venue and jurisdiction are something that need to be proven, they're not part of the definition of the offense. Another way to put, the, another way to put that would be that uh, those are conditions preceding conviction of any criminal offense. Precisely. Just like this, did, this court did in Scoville when, uh, when it was describing this issue uh, that, was, that, uh, that this court declined to, to decide in Scoville, when it uh, described the elements-based approach of determining an offense definition, it cited Minnesota Statutes 152.025, which is where the offense definition is contained. Counsel, that, that, uh, Mr. Raggett still uh, pointed me to, and I don't remember seeing it in his brief, but if he says it's there, it's there, the, the fee case or something like that, or I can't remember the name of it. 
Are you familiar with it? Uh, in his reply brief, there is a single case of this court that was uh, where um, it wasn't at issue in the case. It wasn't as if this issue was litigated or decided in that case, but where uh, where venue and jurisdiction were described as an element of the offense. But that they weren't described as part of the offense definition, that question wasn't litigated in the case. Um, that single um, statement from, from many years ago shouldn't control the decision in this case. And even, and even if it were, there are two reasons, even if that is, even if it were part of the offense definition, uh, there are two reasons that that Strobel should still prevail. First of all, uh, the guidelines, as Justice Chudich pointed out, have the ability to determine how criminal history scores are calculated and how many of, of the justices of the court have pointed out. In Scoville, this court determined that they require current offense definitions and sentencing policies to apply. Uh, 2016 law that was in place when Mr. Strobel committed the current offense was current sentencing, uh, current offense definitions and sentencing policies uh, to hold otherwise would fly in the face of Scoville. And second of all, um, if the argument's true that the effective date included in the DSRA is part of the offense definition of fifth degree drug possession, the effective date says that it applies to crimes committed on or after August 1st, 2016. The offense for which Mr. Strobel was, is being sentenced and the criminal history score is being calculated for was committed after August 1st of 2016. Counsel, and can I just ask you, um, let's just assume that the, the facts are the same here. The crime was committed in two, the same crime exactly as it was committed, um, was committed in 2012, but that, that your client then absconded from the jurisdiction and he was arrested for the 2012 crime in 2017. Mm -hmm. Then what happens with his sentence? Then he's prosecuted under the law because the DSRA was not retroactive, but uh, that's a completely different question than how his criminal history score is calculated. Um, as this court recognized in Scoville, the guidelines commission has the in the guidelines has the ability to determine how criminal history scores are calculated that's a utterly separate and distinct question from whether the dsra would be retroactive to a conviction and sentence just being applied now in 2017 for a 2012 offense but, but that seems sort of odd i mean that he would he would be convicted in 2017 of a felony but then the very next day we're going to sentence him on a on a 2017 offense and we have to count the sentence we did the day before as a gross and not a felony. I, I don't think it's odd, actually, because um, when he committed the offense in 2012, um, that was the law that was in place. Um, the only reason that he's being sentenced now is because he absconded. He was on notice at the time um, under the current law of what sentence would apply to that behavior. Um, when he committed the later offense in 2016, he was on notice under the current law and sentencing guidelines of what his criminal history score might be. And something else um, that makes it not odd that's been brought up at this oral argument is that in a situation like this, where an offense has been deemed uh, to be a misdemeanor, a gross misdemeanor, rather than a felony, it does make sense to reassess how that prior conduct should be uh, should be looked at and calculated in determining how long someone's going to be imprisoned for now. Um, I, think that, I think that the same argument applies uh, in the situation where the legislature had abolished an offense. If the legislature determines that this conduct should not be considered even illegal under the state's argument, as they granted, you would still receive felony points for that offense. Um, I think that those are the reasons that, that it's not odd. And I think, uh, as Justice Hudson was pointing out, there's a difference that this court uh, explicitly recognized in Scoville between retroactivity for the purposes of convictions and sentences for conduct 
committed uh, prior to the effective date and for calculating criminal history scores for conduct committed after the effective date. Counsel, I think we get to comments from the Sentencing Commission only if we determine that there's ambiguity in the guideline itself. But I, di I did want to ask you, what's your response to opposing counsel's argument regarding comment 2B701? Um, he, he argues that means we should be looking at the current version of 609.02 to determine whether something is a felony or a gross misdemeanor. I, I think there are several responses to that. Um, first of all, as this court recognized in Scoville, the comments are advisory, non-binding, as you just said. Um, second of all, uh, as the Court of Appeals recognized, the comment is not inconsistent with, uh, with Mr. Strobel's interpretation. The reason for that is, uh, and this is contrary to something that counsel said uh, in oral argument, um, that as I argued in my brief, uh, the sentencing policies referred to in, uh, in the guidelines provision are references to the principle that uh, when you're sentenced, given a misdemeanor sentence for so a felony you, you offense. So do, you do know what sentencing policies means in <laughs> 7A, huh? That's right. It's a, collection of law, it's a collection of laws that govern sentencing policies, and as Justice Chudich pointed out as well, the guidelines. And one of the things, um, one of the reasons it's not inconsistent with, the comment, with that comment is because the sentencing policy is that when you're sentenced, given a gross misdemeanor sentence for something that would otherwise be a felony, that that is legally determined to be a gross misdemeanor conviction rather than a felony conviction. And as I pointed out uh, in my brief as well, um, not only does this make sense based on the placement of the comment, not only does it make sense uh, sort of as a logical matter because you can't be given a greater sentence um, than the conviction statute allows, but also the history of the comment shows that that language came uh, precisely as a result of that situation. The, that language was inserted into the guidelines to address only the situation where a lower sentence is given for something that could have been a higher sentence. And so um, the idea that there's no reason to believe that that comment applies only uh, in the one-way ratchet down uh, is untrue. There's, there's reason, good reason from legislative history to believe that, uh, and the placement of the comment in the guidelines is the reason to believe that. So it's, uh, first of all, it's, it's not inconsistent, and even if it is, um, it's, it's merely advisory. So um, I, I would love to answer any questions that the court has about, um, about the state's first argument that, that even under even under my interpretation of the statute, they win if the court has further questions on that. Um, otherwise, what I'll do is move on to um, discussing why, why the plain language of the statute uh, requires this result. Um, an offense is a crime. What would, as, the, as the state pointed out, what we're talking about here is what does it mean uh, to be a current offense definition? What does that phrase mean? An offense is a crime. An offense definition is the definition of a crime. And in Scoville, this court concluded that the word current means in effect when the defendant committed the crime for which he was now being sentenced. Um, applying those uh, definitions, uh, I think it's clear that offense definition, current offense definition means the definition of the, of the particular crime in question uh, for which that was in place when the defendant committed the crime for which he was now being sentenced. Um, I think one thing that's important to recognize is that if if this weren't the case, if the state's argument and interpretation were accepted, the word offense would mean two different things inside the same sentence that we're talking about here. Um, the, the 2B7A talks about the classification of a prior offense as a felony, gross misdemeanor, et cetera. Um, in that part of the sentence, a prior offense clearly refers to a particular prior offense. We're talking about the prior offense in question. 
Later in that sentence, the state would have you interpret offense definition to mean the definition of the classification, felony, misdemeanor, et cetera. If the state's definition uh, interpretation of the statute's accepted, then offense means two different things at two different points in the sentence. Well, when you're comparing 7A and 7B, mm -hmm. 7A uses the term classification, um, and so does 7B. But then it used, 7A uses the term offense definition. Is there any difference between the word definition and classification, or are they saying, is it the, are they synonyms? Yeah, that difference is crucial. Um, so the classification is felony, gross misdemeanor, misdemeanor, petty misdemeanor. Those are offense classifications. Um, that's the way the guidelines use the term. Uh, the offense definition is the definition of the offense in question. So you're, you, when, for criminal history score purposes, you're looking to classify a prior offense uh, as one of the classifications, felony, gross misdemeanor, to determine how many points uh, are going to be assigned. When determining that classification, you look at the current offense definition, which is the definition of the particular offense at issue. Counsel, though, what, give me your best argument, though, on, I mean, when you read the, the sentence, you have that, the, the parenthetical saying offense definitions, see Minnesota Stat 609.02. And mm -hmm. um, I'll, I appreciated your, your blue book um, uh, analogy in, in, in your footnote, in your, in your brief. That was helpful. And maybe that's, that's how we look at, at the C. Um, but help me with that, because it does seem to point you, it says, okay, if you want to know what offense definitions are, you go to 609.02, and it goes right to Mr. Raggett's point. So what, to, what 2B7A says is if you want to know how an offense definition, or excuse me, how a prior offense will be classified, you need to, uh, that's determined by the offense definitions, and then that parenthetical comes in. What the parenthetical does is guide you to the section of the statute where you can determine, based on offense definitions, how to classify the offense. And the reason that it's there is because a lot of offenses are, a lot of offense definitions, so the statutes that define what conduct constitutes the offense and how it'll be punished don't actually include the words felony, gross misdemeanor, misdemeanor, or petty misdemeanor. For those offenses, someone... In fact, in fact that's true throughout the whole controlled substance crime chapter, I think. I mean, Except for 152.025, which specifically defines trace possession offenses as gross misdemeanors. Okay. Um, those but most words of them are, just tell you but that's the, right. the penalty. They just say you're subject to so many years. And so if you want to know... I mean, your argument is, if you, and if you want to know what that means, then you go to 60902 and you say, oh, that means it's a felony. Exactly. It tells you how to apply the offense definition to a classification um, if, it, if the offense definition doesn't say the words felony or misdemeanor. Um, I'd, I'd like to also move on to addressing a couple of uh, the state's points about um, or the state's arguments about why uh, my interpretation shouldn't be accepted. Um, so we already... We already talked about, um, about the superfluity argument of the parenthetical. My argument doesn't render it superfluous. It, it functions in every situation where, uh, where the offense definition doesn't use the word felony or misdemeanor. Um, and under uniformity, um, I, I don't think that, uh, that the state's point is actually true. Um, the guidelines specifically talk about, so uh, the state offered a hypothetical about um, someone receiving fewer felony points because their offense was committed out of state. Um, the guidelines specifically talk about classifying prior offenses, classifying prior offenses uh, based on current offense definitions. The guidelines don't talk about um, how to assign severity levels for prior offenses that are still felonies. In the state's hypothetical, that's assuming 
that the severity level would be, uh, it would be assigned a different severity level under current law. The guidelines don't require that result. Um, the commission talked about requiring that result and rejected it. Um, that result isn't required by the guidelines. It's a hypothetical um, that, that I don't think is true. So those out-of-state, in-state uniformity issues there aren't required by the guidelines because the use of current offense definitions uh, is, is required um, for, for classification rather than severity level. Um, and that's the answer to the floodgate argument that anybody's who, who's um, under, after the Reform Act, anybody who's previous, let's say, uh, first degree conviction becomes a second degree conviction, um, 7A doesn't give them any ability to go back and argue that they should be resentenced because there's been no change and they're still convicted of a felony. Section 2B7A only talks about classification of prior offenses and the classification only comes into play. You're right, yes. The classification only comes into play when something changes from a felony to a misdemeanor rather than a different um, level of felony. Um, unless this court has other questions, um, I think that, I think that uh, I'll conclude just by, our, just by stating that, uh, that the language of the guidelines is unambiguous, the legislative history of the guidelines is unambiguous. Um, Mr. Strobel's interpretation should be adopted, and this this court should affirm the court I've of appeals. Got one more. Yes, How do you please. respond to opposing counsel's argument that the legislature very clearly said the DSRA was not retroactive? Now that doesn't answer the question before us, but isn't that a, a signal that the legislature is saying, if you're convicted of a drug offense before the date of the DSRA, you're stuck with it, and why then why wouldn't you be stuck with it for sen sentencing uh, calculation purposes, criminal history purposes? Because as this court pointed out in Scoville, uh, at, clearly pointed out in Scoville, calculation of criminal history scores is something that is done by the Guidelines Commission. Uh, when the DSRA was passed, for many years before that, this provision requiring the use of current Minnesota offense definitions and sentencing policies in calculating criminal history scores was in place. That was already in place when the DSRA was passed. Um, retroactivity talks about affecting final convictions and sentences. Um, as this court talked about in Scoville, it doesn't affect uh, or apply to criminal history score calculation. And this... Uh, this provision was in place for years before the passage of the DSRA. The DSRA, in the DSRA, uh, the legislature directed lots of changes to the guidelines, told the commission to undertake many changes to the guidelines. One thing it did not do is direct the guidelines to make, the commission to make some sort of exception to the clearly stated rule applying current Minnesota offense definitions uh, so that those threshold weights, uh, or excuse me, so that fifth degree drug position, possession would forever remain a felony. The language of the guidelines was clear. The DSRA, uh, the legislature, told the Guidelines commissions to make, Commission to make lots of changes. It didn't t tell the Guidelines Commission to make a change in this case. I think that, I think that that's as clear a signal as any um, that setting legal retroactivity questions aside, the, the legislature uh, didn't have any intent not to uh, affect criminal history scores uh, when it comes to the change of fifth degree from a felony to a gross misdemeanor. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Raggetts, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thanks. 
So let's start with forfeiture. Uh, Mr. Trouble claims I've forfeited my argument about the elements-based approach. Um, there wasn't any motion to strike that from my reply brief, which there could have been if this was truly a new uh, argument. And it's not true that the Court of Appeals adopted that approach. I explained that in my reply brief. The Court of Appeals adopted the classification approach, but then unfortunately went beyond just looking at the definitions of felonies and went to the elements. But my argument in my reply brief is a direct response to what's argued in respondent's brief. It's not a new issue. Uh, it's just a responsive argument. It shouldn't be struck or not considered by this court. Yeah, but it was your first argument today, and it was emphasized heavily in your reply brief, and it does strike me as a different argument than the simple question um, as to whether the Court of Appeals was right or wrong. Um, well, why, why, why isn't a new argument first raised in a reply brief? Was it raised in the Court of Appeals? No, I think because the argument the Court of Appeals was that you should adopt the classification approach. Um, and that is ultimately what the Court of Appeals did. So then Mr. Strobel argues, essentially, uh, in this court, you should adopt this elements-based approach. And my response is, well, we win under either yeah, The either argument in approach. the Court of Appeals was element approach or um, sentencing approach, right? Right. And so wouldn't it have been logical for the state and the Court of Appeals to say, make the even-if argument? It would have been, and I didn't brief it at the Court of Appeals. Um, you, didn't, you didn't brief in your principal brief here. So why, well, I, why I, isn't it a brand new argument? I think I did argue in my principal brief here that, that the date is an element. Um, but in any event, we can always make new arguments in response to arguments from the other side. Um, this isn't something I'm introducing out of the blue. His argument is, essentially, the Court of Appeals got the right result but the wrong way, they should have gone with the elements-based approach. Uh, and my argument is, well, even under that elements-based approach, the Court of Appeals is still wrong. Um, and again, there hasn't been any motion to strike. Uh, Can you that. respond to the argument, though, that um, maybe the date is an element, but it's not part of the offense definitions? Well, Mr. Strobel's argument is that offense definitions means elements. So that's how I'm getting the elements into offense definitions. Now, if you are just looking at offense definitions and not considering the elements approach, well, then I win under the crime level approach. But even if you're just looking at the offense definition, part of the offense definition is when the offense um, was created. It has to be. Again, otherwise, revenge porn becomes a crime way before it was a statute here. Or an out-of-state revenge porn conviction can be used for criminal history score, even if it wasn't a crime here. Thanks. So in Finnerty, which is the case you cite, yeah, Finnerty. Right. The issue in that case was not whether date is an element. I mean, the extent this court discussed it at all, all we're doing is quoting from the trial court. So I think that's right. a bit of a stretch. Well, I don't think there can be any serious debate that debate is an, that, that an el, the date is an element. Every single jury is asked, when did it occur and where did it occur? That's in every single crim jig that defines the elements. Now, this court has never had to wrestle with that issue before, so this is dicta, I suppose, because I can't remember a time when the legislature has changed the drug amounts or other things that where the date would really matter. Um, I mean, I guess it always matters in terms of the, uh, the statute of limitations, but I, given what jurors are asked in every single criminal case, I don't think there can be a serious debate that 
the date is an element. And the date here is before the DSRA took effect. Uh, and I think that's really all you need to decide in this case. Um, but going on to the, the debate between the elements-based so approach. So, the, so current in the sentencing guidelines basically means you inquire about whether the legislature said something is retroactive or not. Right. Or not. That's, that's your whole argument, that if they said it's retroactive, it is. So, so why wouldn't they just say that? Why wouldn't the sentencing guidelines just say that? Well, current is a much shorter way to say that. I mean, well, you, you can say retroactive. That's the same. It's one word each. Well, you'd have to say the current offense definition applies unless it's retroactive. Um, or well, the, why wouldn't they? Maybe, maybe they should have said that if that's your argument. They didn't say that, did they? Well, no, but if, if, if the date is an element and you're looking at the current Minnesota offense definition, then the date of effectiveness is part of that current Minnesota offense definition. Um, and again, there's certainly no indication here that the legislature intended the DSRA to be sweeping uh, in terms of its effect on prior crimes. But, but that's the DSRA, but the sentencing guidelines, which is what we're actually interpreting here, says, which, as other people have pointed out, pre-existed the changes to the, the changes to the, the pre-existed right. DSRA, DRSR, DRSA. Um, that has always been saying current. Right, and what we're interpreting is the, is the term current. And so you're, you're kind of trying to incorporate something that happened in a separate act to interpret what the guidelines said. Well, what I'm saying is if, if current means elements, date's always been an element. This court has never had to wrestle with that before because the date hasn't ever particularly mattered before because there hasn't been a case like this where the drug weights have changed. And we already know what you do with monetary thresholds. But to Justice Tudich's point, the, the, the point of the the current and what that she made earlier, the point of that provision and the way Scoville interpreted current, the word current, is basically to say when we're sentencing someone for a, a crime that was committed afterwards. So we're not really concerned with the 2012 crime here. We're concerned with the 2016 crime and what sentence we should impose on the person who committed for the 2016 crime. Right. And what that provision is saying under Scoville and its language is that what we're going to look then is how would we treat that prior offense today if it were committed today? Right. That's what, that's what it, that was meant. Not how we would have treated it had it been committed in 2012, but if that same crime in 2012 had been committed today, how would we treat it? That's what Scoville is exactly about. And I don't understand. I think that's my confusion with your argument. Well, the Scoville footnote expressly leaves this issue open. Uh, and doesn't decide it. And the only way to reach that result is to ignore the date. But Scoville left open was not that issue. It was the issue, the second issue you're talking about. Are we talking about elements or are we talking about crime definitions under 60902? That was what was left open. And, and, and frankly, you're, well, the way you quoted footnote 15 in your brief, I, I just have to say was a little bit, uh, was problematic because you said that we said something which when we were some, just describing someone's argument. And I just needed to put that out there. But well, what I, I have to say, but, so, but what Scoville left open was this issue that you're arguing the second issue today. It was not left open the first issue that you're arguing today. Well, it didn't address the first issue. It didn't say element doesn't mean date. I mean, there's no, no place, no one's ever said elements don't include the date. That's just not something that came up there or had to be decided there. Um, and I, I don't know what, I mean... My block quote is, says what it says, but um, Scoville left open the crime level versus elements definition. My argument is 
Elements include dates, so you don't need to reach that, just as you didn't reach an issue in Scoville. But let's go back to the crime level definition argument then. I've given you my four reasons for it. Um, Mr. Strobel essentially doesn't dispute that 60902 is superfluous under his reading. He says it's helpful. Well, that's, that's what superfluous means. It doesn't change anything. It's just nice or helpful. So under the plain language uh, interpretation, 60902 must mean something, and it should be held to mean based on its placement, not after felony, um, but after definitions, that you look at these crime level definitions. Otherwise, it's superfluous. Otherwise, um, 2B701 is wrong. 2B701 is plain and broad. It could have been written narrowly. It isn't written narrowly. And under his argument, you don't always look at the sentence, like 2B701 says. Sometimes you look at the offense. So his approach renders 60902 superfluous. It contradicts 2B701. Um, and I stand by the Duluth Superior hypothetical I gave you because under his argument, a change in from first degree to second degree won't matter for Minnesota defendants because it doesn't change whether it's a felony or not, but it will change for out-of-state defendants because there you just look at the elements. And so under his elements approach where you ignore the date, you're going to have inconsistency where people did the same thing on two different sides of the bridge but did get different criminal history points. And that goes against the and sentencing policy language. And I don't think there's any evidence what that means. We is can both speculate. That, is that how that works, or do you look at how the Wisconsin statute would be applied under Minnesota statute? Well, for I, thought, I thought that's how the sentencing guidelines work, that you actually look at what the elements of the Wisconsin statute are, but then you say, what would this be under Minnesota law? It's a two-step process. If under Minnesota law it wouldn't be a felony, it doesn't matter if it was a felony in their state. Here they're both still felonies. And then you look at, did you receive a felony sentence in the other state? If you didn't get a felony sentence in the other state, again, it doesn't matter. But here we're not talking about the difference between felonies and non-felonies. We're talking about severity levels. We're talking about points. And under his argument, where you have to look at the elements to determine points, uh, or just to determine how, to, how something is applied, you do get the benefit of the DSRA in Superior, but you don't in Duluth because you don't have the felony to non-felony change. Uh, and with two seconds left, unless there are additional questions, I simply ask that you reverse the Court of Appeals. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Thanks to both Counsel for the help you provided to the Court in this matter. This case is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.